where are all the kids at today? Can you guys raise your hands up? Okay. My, uh, my question I have for you guys today is, who thinks they can count the highest? How high do you think you can count, Drew? Four hundred. It's pretty high. What about you, Noah? Uh, how, how long do we have? How long do we have? That's a good question. Uh, let's say forever. Infinity. He can count to infinity. What do you think, Zaley? One thousand. Anybody else? What do you got, Solomon? Infinity. So that's two infinities. One infinity, two infinity. One thousand. What do you think, Dinah? Two hundred? Isaiah? Two infinity. All right. Okay, now I'm going to ask a question of a grown-up in the audience. And I did not prepare him to answer this, but... uh, Mr. Mr. Miller, the math teacher, is it possible to count to infinity? No. Yeah. Because in, infinity is greater than any number. And so like, what that means is that if today we started with a piece of paper and we wrote down one, and then wrote down two, and then wrote down three, and then kept going as long as we lived, we would never run out of numbers. Even if we did that, and then someone else started where we left off when we died, and they did it their whole life until they died, they would never run out of numbers. They would keep increasing by one until they got to the biggest number anyone ever knew. And then that person could die and someone else could start over and they could write down more and more and more and more and more numbers and it would just go on forever. And today, one of the things we're talking about is we're talking about that God is perfect. And what that means is that he is complete. God is like a list of all the numbers, including infinity. That's a way that he's different than us. Like, we have an end. We stop. And so, no matter how hard we try, we can't count to infinity. We can maybe count to 200, 400, 1,000, a million if we had enough time, but we can never get to infinity. But God is perfect. He is complete in a way that we're not and we won't ever be. And he is infinite. So he goes on past all the numbers we've got. Uh, and so, kids, I would encourage you today to go home and, and ask your parents uh, about what it means that God is perfect, what it means that God is infinite, and how that matters for your life today, about, about how him being perfect and him being infinite uh, should be encouraging you to, as a kid who's, who's trying to live your life and understand who God is and, and worship him. Uh, so, Parents, have a conversation with your kids about the ways in which God is different than us. Because one of the reasons why we're doing this series is so that we can learn more about him. And it's not just so that we can have this knowledge for ourselves, but so that we can share it with others. So parents, share it with your kids. Talk to them about these big things of God, because I bet that you'll be surprised that they will get things that you don't get about it, because they have better imaginations than we do. Um, So go home, have that conversation, uh, 
and then keep having it. Let's, let's pray before we get into the sermon today. God, we thank you that you are infinite. That you always were and always are and always will be. That you are perfect. You're holy. That you're gracious and just and righteous and merciful and patient and that you are so very different and distinct from us, and yet you came down to our level to redeem us and to save us so that we could have a relationship with you. God, I pray today that as we look once again at your attributes in your word and and learn more about who you are and, and both the ways in which you're different than us and also the ways in which you call us to imitate you, that you would send your spirit uh, to move us by your word so that we would be more and more conformed into your image and, and less and less like who we are in our brokenness. Jesus, we thank you for for your sacrifice on our behalf. God, we thank you for the truths of the Reformation that we can know and we can believe that our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. God, I thank you for sending Martin Luther to nail those 95 theses on the door of that church. And I pray that we would continue the Reformation. We would continue calling one another back into obedience to your word because it is the only sufficient standard of authority we have. God, we thank you that you've revealed yourself to us in it and pray that you would be with us now as we study it together. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So today, we, uh, we wrap up our series on the doctrine of God, um, and we're going to look at one last category of God's attributes. And so if you remember, we, we began this series, I think it was maybe eight, eight weeks ago, with, with two quotes. And the first quote was by a guy named Dave Busby, and he said, whatever your view of God is, it's too small. And I hope that as we've gone through this series, that you have seen the truth of that statement. Uh, I know that I have personally, as I've been studying these things, even though thinking, you know, like I've read, I've read books on this before, I've studied this before, I know all of this stuff, but, but thinking about it and spending time on it has caused me to worship God in ways that I didn't before. It's caused me to marvel at who he is and, and how much he really is bigger than me and my view of him. Uh, and so whatever your view of God is, it's too small. And I hope today that that, that, that just becomes more and more clear uh, even than it was the first couple weeks that we did this series. Um, the second quote was that uh, A.W. Tozer said, whatever comes into your minds when you think about God is the most important thing about you. 
and kind of the, the, the truth that he's kind of tugging on there is that we are called to imitate God. Like Paul says in Ephesians 5.1, he says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Because he's bought us into his family, we're to be those who are like him, who, who kind of bear the family likeness. And the way we do that is by knowing what God is like so that we can walk in imitation of him. And so as we've gone through this series, we've hopefully together learned more about what God is like. We've got a a bigger and a more accurate picture of who he is so that we can be people who are walking around imitating him, showing other people what he is like so that they can have a bigger and better picture of what he is like. And so today as we kind of wrap up this series talking about the rest of God's communicable attributes we haven't talked about so far, uh, I hope that that just kind of continues to happen for you and that these aren't things that you just kind of forget about as we move on to the next thing as a church, um, but it's something that we would continually be pointing one another back to. Um, And today... It's kind of fitting that we're talking about his, his summary attributes. These are, these are attributes that kind of summarize, in some ways, God's being and character as a whole. And really, this isn't, this isn't a category. You know, like we've talked about his, his will and his character and his being. This one really isn't a category like those. It's more of the absence of a category. These attributes kind of fit into all the categories because they describe God's being as a whole. Uh, and so these... Uh, the three attributes we're talking about today are perfection, blessedness, beauty, and then we have a, a honorable mention at the bottom, which is glory. Now, before you guys call John Piper and tell him that I'm like downplaying God's glory and saying that it's not important, that's not what I'm saying with this. See, it's, it's an honorable mention. It's, it's important, but it's not an attribute. But we're still going to talk about it today because it's a very important concept in Scripture and a very important concept for our lives and definitely should impact how we view and understand God. Uh, but it's not an attribute in the same way that the other ones are. And so we'll, we'll talk about that at the end today. So just like we've done all the other weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to throw out a definition of what the attribute is. We're going to look at where we see that in Scripture, and then we're going to talk about how it's communicable. Because it's one of the attributes that we participate in, that we share in, that God communicates to us, uh, we need to know how we're supposed to imitate God in these things. And so we'll, we'll walk through those steps together today, and we'll start with perfection. Uh, here's the definition for you. God completely possesses all desirable qualities and lacks no part of any qualities that would be desirable for him. So the first thing we should notice about this definition is that it's, it's not focused on the idea of like moral perfection. We're not talking about blamelessness or flawlessness or kind of moral purity in that way. Is God those things? Is he blameless? Is he flawless? Is he morally perfect? Yes, absolutely yes. And we talked about that when we talked about God's holiness a few weeks ago. But when scripture uses the word perfection to talk about God and to talk about us, it's focused more on the idea of completion, of, of not lacking anything. And so that's why the definition says God completely possesses all desirable qualities. He does not lack uh, any qualities or, or even any part of any qualities that would be desirable for him. He's perfect in that way. That's what this attribute is focused on. So he's perfect, he's complete uh, in every possible sense of the word. So where do we see this in Scripture? Well, I want to give you a list. 
God's work is perfect in Deuteronomy 32.4. God's way is perfect, or his ways are perfect in 2 Samuel 22.31. His law is perfect in Psalm 19.7. His beauty is perfect in Psalm 50, verse 2. His renown is perfect in Ezekiel 16.16. His will is perfect in Romans 12.2. And his patience is perfect in 1 Timothy 1.16. And that's just a sampling. God is perfect in every possible way. Uh, and then there's the kind of general statement in Matthew 5:48. He says, "You therefore, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect." So God as a whole is perfect. He's complete, he's not lacking in anything. And then in each of the individual ways he could possibly be perfect, he is perfect. So he's kind of perfect in an overarching way, and then in all of his qualities, he is perfect as well. God completely possesses all desirable qualities, and he does not lack anything. Matthew 5.48, it also answers our last question about his perfection, of how is this communicable to us? What What do we do with God being perfect? Well, Jesus says, your heavenly Father is perfect. You, therefore, must be perfect as well. So just be perfect. Just just go and be perfect. I think that the fact that this is talking more about completion than moral perfection in some ways makes this a little more comforting to us uh, because we, we all know uh, pretty thoroughly and uh, through our experience that we're not morally perfect, that we are flawed, that we are broken, that we are imperfect in those ways. Um, but I think we also know, uh, no matter how highly we think of ourselves, that we don't possess all the desirable qualities. We don't certainly don't completely possess all the desirable qualities. We do lack things that would be desirable for us to have. And that shouldn't come as a surprise to you. There are things that people wish you were better at. They might think you were, wish you were more patient or more nice or more loving or more kind or more assertive or more bold or more mean or rude. Because people are weird and we want weird things in other people. But God does possess all those things and he's calling us, Jesus, in Matthew 5, to be like God in that way. Um, and God's word does tell us that this is going to happen to us. Check out Hebrews 10, 14. It says, For by a single offering, he, that's Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What Hebrews 10, 14 is telling us is that our perfection, our being perfect, like our Heavenly Father is perfect, is something that for us is is inevitable and eventual. It's going to happen to us. And there are two very important things we need to get out of this verse. There's a whole lot of stuff we can get out of it today. We're going to focus on two things. The first is that this verse tells us that for those of us who have trusted in Christ, who have benefited from his death on our behalf, it tells us that uh, our perfection isn't primarily dependent upon us. It says, by, uh, by his single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. In Hebrews 10, 14, we are passive. We're not doing anything. 
Something is being done to us. Jesus is the one taking action in Hebrews 10.14. We're just sitting on the sidelines having something done for us. He is doing the perfecting. We are the ones that are just being perfected. So the first thing we need to get out of this verse is that it's, it's not primarily dependent upon me or you that one day, inevitably, eventually, we will be made perfect. It's dependent upon him and his work and what he's accomplished on the cross on our behalf. We just receive it, and that's it. The second thing that we need to get out of this verse is that even though we will inevitably and eventually be made perfect because of what he's done for us, we aren't yet. And again, that shouldn't be shocking to us. The verse ends by saying that he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We're in the process. We're in a a progressive growth where we become more and more and more and more holy like he's called us to be and less and less and less like who we were before he intervened in our lives. And so he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Like we're in process and we always will be in this life, which should be very, very freeing to us. Because that means we don't need to fake it with one another. I don't need to act like I have all the desirable qualities because I don't. And you know that I don't. And I know that you don't. And so why should we pretend with one another like we do? We all know that we all will be perfected if we really trust in Christ. And we all know that we are currently in the process of being sanctified. And so let's just be real about that with one another. We struggle. I struggle. You struggle. So I don't need to hide that from you. You don't need to hide that from me. Instead, we participate together in this process of growth, knowing that one day we're finally going to be made perfect. One day we won't lack anything. One day we will be made perfect because Jesus has done that. But even though we will be made perfect, we should not make the mistake of thinking that we will be perfect in exactly the same way that God is perfect. Because he's still different than we are. He is infinite and we are finite. And like we talked about with the numbers earlier, like eventually we get to a number that we can't go any higher than. God doesn't. Um, and if you want more of a mathematical ex- explanation for how something can be infinite and complete at the same time, you should talk to Daniel. He gave me a couple answers this week, and then my head started hurting. And so, like, I, but but you know, he's a math guy. God is infinite, um, and we won't ever be infinitely perfect like he is. But we will be made perfect, and in that way we do share in God's perfection. Um, And that's something I think we should long for and hope in, even as it's being worked out in us in the present. The next attribute is God's beauty. Blessedness comes first before beauty. The definition here is uh, God delights fully in himself and in all that reflects his Character. So blessedness carries with it the idea of, of almost, almost happiness, but 
but better because when we think of happiness, we think of just kind of this fickle thing that is there one moment and then gone the next. And that's because we're, we're broken and we're not like God. But God is blessed. He is happy. And the point of this definition is that his blessedness, it's rooted in himself. God fully takes delight in himself. Not in something outside of himself. That's not where it's rooted. That's not what it's primarily dependent upon. It's dependent upon who he is, his character and his being. That's the source of his blessedness. So like, he produces his own joy and his own delight. We don't. And that's why happiness for us is something that changes. Because it's dependent upon something outside of me. And if that thing goes away or changes or, or Liverpool loses instead of wins... I go from happy to unhappy, or from unhappy to happy. But God is always blessed. He just possesses blessedness. Um, But this definition also highlights the fact that God delights in all that reflects his character. So even though it's, it's, it's fully dependent upon him, he also can and does take delight in the parts of his creation, including us, that reflect his character. Um, there's two main places I want to go to in scripture where we see this. And they're both in 1 Timothy. The first is 1 Timothy 1.11. Paul says, In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So there he's just he's talking about God and he refers to him as the one who is blessed. Same thing in 1 Timothy 6.15. He says, Which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. God is blessed. He, he possesses blessedness. And so how is this communicable to us? How do we how do we share in, how do we participate in God's blessedness? I think we do it in two ways. Uh, because it is God fully delighting in himself and then also delighting in, in the parts of his creation that reflect him himself, uh, we do it in the same way. The first thing we do is we delight in God. Right? His blessedness means that he is the ultimate source of joy and delight and happiness. So why do we try to find it in other things? Right? If, if we know that and if we, if we believe that, then why do we make our happiness, why do we make our joy, why do we make our delight dependent upon something else that's going to fail us, that isn't going to satisfy us? We do it because we're broken and we make bad decisions and we screw up. But what we should do is we should find our joy, find our delight in God, because he is the only one who will ultimately satisfy all that we desire. He is the only source of joy and happiness and delight that's not going to fail us. It isn't going to fall short. Um, And we also, the second way, is we delight in what he delights in, which is the parts of his creation that reflect his, his, his blessedness, his beauty, who he is. And so I think we do that in, in, in three ways. We do that in ourselves, right? When we don't screw up and fall short, we should not say, Dan, you are so awesome that that person said that mean thing to you and then you said a nice thing to them. You are such a great guy who should be honored and respected the world over. I shouldn't do that. I do. But I shouldn't do that. Instead, I should say, you know what? The only good in me is not me. 
The only good in me is what he has worked out in me. It's a way in which I'm being sanctified because of what he's done on my behalf. And so when there is good in me, it should cause me to delight in God because I know I'm delighting in him being good in me, not me being good in me. We delight in ourselves, in the part of us that God is making and has made new. And so we should take joy. We should celebrate the fact that he is working out our salvation in us. But we shouldn't do it in a way that builds us up. We should do it in a way that honors him. Uh, The second way we do it is in one another, right? When we see a fellow brother or sister in Christ doing or being who God has called them to be, we should celebrate that. That should make us happy. That should cause us delight and joy. That's a good thing. And we know that it's not them. We know that it's God doing what he said he would do in them. And so we should celebrate God, not just working in ourselves, but working in others. And I think we also do this in his creation. Because he has created this beautiful, amazing world that reflects who he is. And so we should go outside. And when the weather goes from warm one day to crazy cold the next day to warm the next day to, you know, whatever it's like, uh, we should celebrate the fact that God has made this world. And and we can see him in it. Uh, The Psalms tell us that the heavens declare uh, his, his character, his glory. The, the, the skies proclaim his handiwork. Paul says in Romans 1 that, that what can be plainly seen about God is evident in his creation, his, his attributes and his power. We can witness them in the world around us. They're not the Bible. They're not the only sufficient and you know, infallible and errant revelation of God himself, but we can know more of God by spending time in his world. So we should delight in his creation because it reflects him. Um, even though the weather can change and, you know, so like that's, that's not our source of happiness. He is our source of happiness. Um, his beauty is the next attribute we're talking about today. And it's, it's pretty similar to both blessedness and perfection, but it's, it's different. The definition here is that God is the sum of all desirable qualities. God is the sum of all desirable qualities. So, um, Beauty is kind of like the positive side of perfection. Perfection was defined kind of more negatively, like God doesn't lack anything. Anything that would be good for him to have, he has. Uh, but beauty is the positive side. God has all the desirable qualities. God is the total package. Anything you would want in uh, someone, God has. Um, and so this is the point of his uh, beauty. And so his perfection and his beauty, they're kind of like two sides of the same truth. God doesn't lack anything, and he has everything that we would desire him to have. Um, here's a quote from, from Wayne Grudem about his beauty. It says, It reminds us that all of our good and righteous desires, all of the desires that really ought to be in us or in any creature, find their ultimate fulfillment in God and no one else. So everything good that we desire and everything good that we should desire but don't desire finds its ultimate fulfillment in God. Because he is the one that possesses everything good that we should desire or could desire. David gets at this in Psalm 27.4. He says, One thing I've asked of the Lord, 
that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. He understood what I desire can only be seen in him. And so I want to spend my life doing that. Psalm 50, verse 2, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. God isn't just beautiful, he's, he's perfectly beautiful. And in Psalm 73, 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Asaph here, as he's writing the psalm, he recognized that, that earth doesn't have anything that can completely satisfy him. The only thing that can fulfill all the longings of his heart and fulfill all the longings that should be in his heart is God himself. So he's seeking after him as the source of what he desires. So how do we reflect God's beauty? Um, obviously, like we talked about earlier, we don't, we don't possess all the desirable qualities. Um, and so how do we begin to imitate him? Well, listen to Matthew 5.16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I think when we imitate God, we, we model his beauty to the world around us. Like We don't possess it perfectly like he does. We don't have the desirable qualities that he has. But the desirable qualities that we do have, we got from him. And so when we live the kind of life that he's called us to do, when we let our good works be visible to others, what it does is it causes them to see his qualities in us. And we don't do that so that people would look at us and say, hey, look at those people that are doing those good things. We do it so that they would look at us and say, there isn't an explanation of them other than that someone else is causing them to live this way and be this way and treat people this way. We live and act and try to imitate God so that people would look at us and see not us, but see him. That's how we can model his beauty to the world around us. By, by putting it on display, by walking in obedience, by allowing ourselves to be progressively more and more and more conformed into his image so that people can see and witness his beauty in us. Because we don't have any desirable qualities aside from what he's given to us. The last thing we're talking about today is, is closely related to this, and that's his, his glory. Um, and like I said earlier, this isn't really an attribute. It's more like a, a result of his attributes. Because of who God is, he has glory. And so an attribute is like God is. God is love. God is gracious. God is righteous. God is, is justice. God is uh, holy. He is his attributes. He isn't glory, but he has glory. He has glory because of who he is. Um, and when we talk about God's glory, there's, there's two kind of twin truths of, of what glory is and, and, and what it does. So the first one is that God's glory is his, his excellent reputation and his infinite honor. Um, Piper says that it's uh, his, his perfection made public. Like it, it's who he is put out there for all to see so they can see how worthy and honorable and excellent he is. Um, so that's kind of the first, first side. We see this in a place like Romans 3.23, where Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We 
are broken. We are flawed. We have all sinned, and because of that, we fall short of God's infinite worth and his perfection and his, his honor. We're not honorable like he is. We're underneath it. We fall short. Uh, or he says that uh, in Psalm 24.10 that God is the king of glory. Isaiah 43.7, he created us for his glory. We're created for his infinite honor and his reputation. Uh, God is the father of glory in Ephesians 1.17. Jesus is the Lord of glory in James 2.1. Psalm 76.4 just simply states that God is glorious. God has this excellent reputation, uh, this infinite honor. But the second truth uh, is that God's glory is the, the brightness that surrounds the manifestation of God's presence. Uh, and if that sounds weird to you, it sounds weird to me too. Psalm 104, 1 and 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. So Psalm 104, uh, 1 and 2 tell us that God is clothed with his splendor, his majesty, his, his infinite honor and his, his reputation. And he covers himself with light as with a garment. Now you might push back and say, wait a second. That's a psalm. It's poetry. You know, they're just using some flowery language to say God like wears light like a clothing to say God, he's, he's great. Well, Luke 2. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and... The glory of the Lord shone around them, shined, if you want to use worse English, around them, and they were filled with great fear. So these shepherds are out in the middle of the night, in the dark, and an angel shows up, and Luke tells us that God's glory shines around them. But the, 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 the world around them, when this angel shows up, lights up. Because God's glory has been manifested in the place that they're at. And so it doesn't seem like Psalm 104, 1 and 2 was just being poetic. It seems like there is a, a, an aspect of his glory where actual, visible, tangible light is produced. Um, we see the same thing in Exodus 34, 29 through 35. It says, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face." Whenever Moses went in with the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what was commanded, the people would see the face of Moses, that the skin of his face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Just in case we don't get what's going on here, Paul spells it out for us in 2 Corinthians 3, 7. He says the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory. So Moses meets with God, sees a manifestation of his presence, of his glory, and then his glory sticks on Moses' face. 
And Moses comes down from the mountain and his face is shining so much so that the people are like, get away from us, what's wrong with you? There is something about God's glory that causes it to break out into his creation as light and it affects the world around it. We also see this in Revelation It says, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So in the new heavens and new earth, there's going to be a city, the new Jerusalem, and in that city, there's no sun or moon or or lights, just God's glory. It provides the light, because his presence is on display there in a way in which it's not on display anywhere else. God is, is so great and so infinitely honorable that it can't just be contained in himself, but it breaks out as light into his creation so that it can be seen with our eyes. Like, that's, that's crazy. None of us has a reputation or a character or anything in us that causes us to be so great that we produce light. And we never will. And so that right there should settle the argument for us. God is great, and I am not. And any time we, in our heads, begin to think that we deserve more honor than we really have, what we should do is we should go in our house and look in a mirror and say, is my face shining right now? And if it's not, then we should be reminded that we don't have the kind of reputation that God has. And so we should not pretend like we do. We are also, I think, called to be people that point others to God's glory. When I was in, in college, there was a time where some friends and I were, were driving from, from HLG to Quincy because, you know, then Hannibal had even less stuff than it had now. And so anytime we wanted to do something, we would go to Quincy. And that day, I had changed uh, the spark plugs and spark plug wires on my truck. And so I had, you know, fixed it and we were driving and as we were driving there, uh, it, my, my truck started misfiring, which means that one of the cylinders, didn't, one of the spark plugs wasn't firing, uh, and so it was running rough. And I figured, all right, I must have just done something wrong today when I, when I did that. Um, and so I pulled over to the side of the road, and this was in like 99 or, or 2000. And so, you know, we didn't have these fancy phones that we have now that just have a light on them so we could see. And so it was, it was dark, and I, w- I was limited to the, the hood light, but the, the area of the engine where the spark plugs were were down in the side, and I didn't want to stick my hand down inside a hot engine compartment in the dark and just kind of feel around for which spark plug wire was disconnected. And so what I did was I got into my, my car, or my truck, and got a, 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 a CD. That stands for compact disc. That's uh, what, what we used to listen to music on in our cars. And I used that to like reflect the light from the hood <laughs> to the side of the engine so that I could see what was going on and, and, and change or and fix the spark plug wire and reattach it. And like it would have been a whole lot easier if I had a flashlight, but I didn't. Uh, and because of that, like I feel like I learned something about our role in God's world. Like we're supposed to be like the CD. Like we don't we don't have the light. God does. 
And yet we're called to be people that reflect his glory into the place that's broken. So that people look at us and not say, hey, that person's great. But so they say, hey, there's a light up there somewhere. And, and, and that person obviously knows where it is because they're reflecting it. That's what Matthew's talking about when he says that we uh, let our good works uh, be seen by others. So that they glorify God. Not so that they glorify us, not so that they honor us, not so that our reputation gets built up or lifted up, but so that God's does. And as we've been going through this series, we've been talking about who he is and what he's like and what he does, not so that we can become puffed up with knowledge, not so that we can just you know, have all these things, but so that we can imitate him like his word calls us to, so that others around us are drawn not to us, but to him. So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this week, I think Matt's going to come and he's going to introduce it, but I would encourage you to spend time thinking about uh, the ways in which God is calling you right now in your life to be someone who's representing him, his infinite honor, his perfection made public to the world around you. Think about those places that you have in your world that he's calling you to display his perfection and his blessedness and his beauty and his glory where people haven't seen it before. There are things in this world, there are things in us and in our homes that are broken and what they need is the light of the one who is perfect, who possesses all the desirable qualities. Let's pray and then Matt will come. Father, I pray that you would help us, broken and flawed and imperfect people, to be used by you to point to what is greater than us. I pray that you would protect us from being puffed up and prideful and arrogant about our faith or our theology or our obedience or anything that we think we are. But that you would instead remind us of how far short we fall from who you are. That you are the only one who doesn't lack anything. That you are the only one who possesses everything desirable. That you are the only one whose worth breaks out as light into your creation. I pray now that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, that you would work and move in us and and would remind us that we have been or we're being sanctified and that one day we will be made perfect. Amen.